Do you ever catch yourself wishing you didn't have to stay positive? Or maybe you've been working on keeping a positive mindset for years, but it still feels like a daily battle sometimes. Having a chronic illness means you're being told to stay positive all the time. And let's be honest, it's exhausting. Because pushing ourselves to stay positive is not actually positive. There's a much easier way to get a strong, positive mindset and all of the feel-good perks that come with it without the pressure of looking on the bright side. Check out my free resource, The No BS Guide to a Positive Mindset. In it, I give the straight scoop on strategies that work and common strategies that are a waste of time and energy. Go to andreahansencoaching.com now or use the link in this podcast description and get your free resource, The No BS Guide to a Positive Mindset, today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis. If I picked one word to describe today's episode, it would be empowerment. Cindy Lynn works with people who have received diagnoses of all kinds and uses her expertise as a nurse and a coach to help them move through the increasingly complicated healthcare system to create a plan for their diagnoses and beyond. This is a highly informative episode. If you're still in the thick of things with managing a diagnosis or a potential diagnosis, she gives us so many great tips and tools to become more educated and less anxious about a life-changing event. At the end, we talk about the very real idea of self-image during and after a diagnosis. So please enjoy this week's episode and visit andreahansencoaching.com for more on Cindy Lynn, resources we talked about in the show, and transcripts from today's episode. Welcome to the Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis podcast. I'm Andrea Hansen, author, motivational speaker, and master certified coach. When I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I was told I would never reach my goals. But I did. And I'm on a mission to prove that life with a chronic illness can still be expansive and quite remarkable. Everyone has their own unique path. I'm talking to people living with a chronic illness that come from different backgrounds, have different points of view, and are achieving amazing life goals of all kinds to inspire you to achieve what you thought was impossible. These stories are raw, uncensored, and judgment-free. This means that there may be some adult language, sensitive topics, and possible triggers for listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I am here today with Cindy Lynn Lamarucciola the creator of Heal Your Life Community. Cindy Lynn draws on decades of experience in healthcare, corporate management, and life coaching. Cindy Lynn designed the program to empower women to successfully manage their life, career, and reclaim their health while still being active, informed participants in managing their diagnosis. Your diagnosis is only part of your life. Put your diagnosis in its place. Nurse, coach, mom, yogini, foodie, and compassionate guide, Cindy Lynn helps women rediscover their best life after a diagnosis. Hi, Cindy Lynn. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. And great job on the last name there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It is a passion of mine having lived with a really hard to pronounce last name for most of my life. (laughs) I get that. What I love first and foremost about your story is that you have had so many different facets. You were in corporate, you're a nurse, you're a mom, you're a coach, you're a yogini, you have your own business. There's all sorts of things and all sorts of positions that you've been in. 
Where were you in your life when you were diagnosed and how did that fit in? Sure. Um, you know, I think like a lot of women like us, when we look back on the path that we've taken, we would have never believed it had somebody told us, this is where you're going to end up and this is the stops you're going to make and this is the way it's going to work out. Because, of course, we all come out of school or, or start a career with an idea of how things are going to shake out. So I started nursing school, graduated with my Bachelor of Science in nursing, went and worked in a hospital, and, and that was all fine and good. And then things began to migrate for me. So I went from working in the hospital with patients, primarily cardiology, pacemakers, defibrillators, that kind of thing, to working for one of the companies that manufactures those devices. And then I moved from a sales position and, and installation, if you will, into the corporate world. And what a shock it was. I mean, there was marvelous parts of it compared to nursing because there was actually the possibility of just walking out at five o'clock and, and not, not thinking about anything. But I was um, shocked to, to really experience how unhealthy the environment can be in the corporate world. I've been out of it for, you know, for almost 15 years now. And yet everything I hear from my clients says nothing has really changed. You know, laws can change, HR regulations can change, um, the posters that are all displayed around are changed, but it still can be a challenge to, to be a woman in the workplace, in a management position, if you have any kind of health issues at all. It was, it was probably, I like to joke that when I was in the corporate world, it was more acceptable for me to say, I need the afternoon off to take my dog to the vet, than I need the afternoon off to go to a doctor's appointment. Because if you said you had to take your dog in, everybody would be like, oh my gosh, I hope they're fine. You know, can I cover for you? If you had to go to the doctor's office, there was a whole different weight to that. So I, I didn't talk about what was ailing me. I didn't talk about circumstances that I was having challenges with, and I just kind of kept going. So by the time I was in my final corporate position, I was a, a manager of a, a regulatory affairs department and was in the process of going through an FDA inspection, which is an extremely stressful process and the, and the whole company gets evaluated and, and you have people looking over documents and you really need to be on your game and you need to provide what's asked for and do it in a professional and very timely manner. And, and there's a lot that, that really hangs on these. And during this particular inspection, I started getting just this terrible stiff neck. It could hardly wait till it was done and, and you never really know how long they're going to last. And if I could just get a massage, if I could just get to, you know, maybe a chiropractor, maybe somebody could help me. And the pain got so bad that I ended up um, in the dentist's office because the massage didn't help, muscle work didn't help. Um, painkillers didn't help, you know, and I needed to function. So we're talking just big doses of ibuprofen, which were doing me no good. And found out that I had a massive abscess. A large part of my bone had actually been infected and was disappearing. I had infection all down my neck and, and lymph on that size. And I had 
I was so accustomed to a stress level where that kind of pain was part of the stress and you just wait for it to pass that I didn't even know this was going on in my body. It's amazing what we get used to. Yes. As just as humans, I think it's just part of human nature. Right. If it's something that is constant like that or like a slowly increasing, yes, we get used to it so fast that we don't realize how big it became until it's gone. Right. And it and it became huge. And the other part of it is it's really embarrassing. Like as a nurse, how did I not know that this was going on? But I had compartmentalized so much and I had responsibilities and I did not want to you know, I didn't want to come, I didn't want to come up short for the company and there was so much at stake and, and this was my job and I was proud of the job that I was doing. But the toll it took was tremendous. And when I stepped back, when I saw the x-rays, when I saw the bone missing, it was a wake-up call that I really needed to do something else. I'm always interested in what that departure actually looks like because we're in corporate and I think you put it very well. There's a certain sense, a lot of times, not always, I know for me, there's this sense of community. Even if it's not like you're so loyal to the actual company, there's a community within the people that you work with. There's pride in your job. And so just picking up and leaving is incredibly difficult. It is. And when you're in a situation and you you have people in the trenches with you. And I had my employees that I felt very responsible for and would try to, to shelter from some of that. And I didn't want to leave them high and dry. You know, that there was the whole aspect of household finances. We were a home that was used to two incomes and it was a significant income. So there were those conversations about, okay, now what? And when I decided to leave, there was a part of me that was willing to do some consulting in the same area, but I really wanted to make a clean break because I knew I would probably end up in the same situation and just put myself there rather than letting, letting someone else, you know, under the guise of, of someone else doing it. I could probably work myself into that same mess on my Absolutely. own. Absolutely. That is something that is not talked about a lot is a lot of people, a lot of people with chronic illness will leave corporate because of exactly why you or why you left. And they think I'm going to become self-employed. I'm going to whatever that business is. I'm going to run my own business. And they don't realize, and I was guilty of this too. They don't realize how indoctrinated they are into this corporate culture. And they don't know any different. I didn't know any different. And so when I started running my business, I was, I basically became my boss that I left <laughs> and wanted to get away from. And you just don't know any different. And to do something different feels so strange. And mm -hmm. I remember feeling like I was slacking 100% because I left dishes in the sink because I worked from home. Like I kept feeling mm -hmm. like I had to clean things up really fast or make dinner every night because I'm home. I should be able to do this. No idea what a balance would look like as far as working, especially working from home and not making half your day about running errands, going to the grocery store, 
doing all sorts yep. of things that you feel like you should do because you're home. But then all of a sudden you have all this other responsibility on top of you. And then at the same time, I felt like I was lazy because I could only work for like three or so hours a day before I would get super tired. And I didn't understand that once you start working for yourself, you are hyper-focused yes. on what you're doing. Like yes. way more focused than when you're at corporate. I just didn't understand the balance at all. That took me a, a while to figure out. It is. It's a, it's a, that's a real interesting thing because you want to feel productive. There's a lot of things you want to do. But if you don't know what the structure of that looks like, you're right. I can at least tell when the dishes are washed. You know, I can check that box. It's done. So I had the advantage that I, I wanted to work with clients again. I wanted to work not with patients necessarily. I wanted to work with self-driven people who wanted to get well. And that's a little bit of a controversial statement. I think if you would, if you would query people in a hospital, you'd say, okay, who wants to get well? And everybody would say yes. But the reality of it is many, many people check into the hospital, get there what we used to call the tune-up, some IV fluids, the medications that they haven't been taking back on board, get things balanced out, go home, decline because they don't keep up all the practices, the medication, the nutrition they're supposed to, and come back and do it all over again. And it was very frustrating as a healthcare professional, and I'm sure it was frustrating for the individual as well, but I wanted to work with people who truly wanted to make a difference. So I started with physical practices, Pilates and yoga, and I still see some clients on a, a rehab basis for that, um, something called muscle activation techniques. And so I had a physical practice and people could set appointments and, oh, and they still can to some degree. And, and that was measurable and that was fine, but it was also new. So the money I was making was nowhere near what I was making in the corporate world that I had spent 25 years building. And there was a strange identity piece with that. You know, I'd always been very independent, able to take care of myself if I, if I needed to. I've, you know, been married for 32 years to the same man who has always been very supportive. But there was a part of me that, that, that financial piece made a big difference. I think there's so much to the sense of identity yes. when it comes to, especially when it comes to people with chronic illness, because you're battling something very real with your health, and then you're also battling normal stuff that happens within your life. Mm -hmm. And there are so many different facets to our identity. And one of them, especially when you're coming from being in a job that pays well and being used to bringing home a paycheck, that financial identity is so important. And I think that's a healthy thing. I don't think there's mm -hmm. anything wrong with that at all. But it's interesting how that changes when we do things like, I have to get out of this environment because of my health. And then you don't realize, oh, that's going to pull a whole other piece of my identity out of whack that I have to then recalculate. Mm -hmm. It, it's really interesting, and if I can skip ahead in this a little bit, because that identity piece is is what I work with women on now, and not just their identity. So it's a great segue, but not just the identity related to work, but their identity related to their diagnosis, because I think you probably know people who have who get a diagnosis, who go through treatments, 
who are maybe chronic in their diagnosis, that managing that becomes a job of sorts. And there's an identity that goes with that. And that identity can get comfortable. So sometimes as we move into remission or as we are cured of our disease or as things become stable, we kind of don't know who we are again then. Just like it took some time when I left corporate to figure out, okay, who is this person? What are they doing? What do I say when somebody asks me, you know, at a family picnic, oh, what are you doing? It's the same when someone's managing diagnosis long-term or even acutely. And it's like, okay, that, that can kind of be done and we could wrap some of that up. Now, who are you? Yeah, it's, that's, that's absolutely something I did when I was working with people that were newly diagnosed. It was a big question of who am I now that I have this? Yes. Who am I now that I have MS? Who am I now that I have this chronic illness? But you bring up a really interesting point because even though there are illnesses that will never go away, like a lot of chronic illness, there's managing it. There's managing symptoms. There's so many things that we can do to make ourselves better to where it's not such a disabling situation on a daily basis. And then it's another question of who am I now? And when you have something like MS that can, you know, like literally come and go relatively quickly where you have good weeks and bad weeks and, and hopefully the good ones last longer than weeks, but there's also that, that, okay, who am I, who am I this week? What am I going to have to do to accommodate this week? And how does that affect people's perceptions of me, which We'd all like to say, I don't care what other people think. If you're going into a corporate workplace or if you have people depending on you, then yes, I have a mess and I am still a dependable woman and a great mom and a, a great employee, but it's figuring out what that looks like. Right. And I think you hit on something really important there. It's other people and yeah, stay your lane. Don't worry about what other people are saying, but I feel like it's not completely possible to just shut everybody else out and forget about it. And other people, what they're thinking about us can affect us in the way that they're reacting to us or what they're saying or how much they do call on us or depend on us. And that comes from a whole bunch of things that we have zero control over, which is their comfort with what they're seeing, maybe what is happening with us through no fault of our own, is triggering them in some way. And right. they're reminded of something else in their life that we have no idea about. And it's, so it's this interplay between other people. And yeah, I'd love to say, forget it. Don't listen to anybody or don't even think about what they think about you. But it, it matters and it impacts us. And actually, one of the first pieces, and it's still one of the most popular pieces, is a free ebook that I have on my website. And it's how to, you know, how to communicate and maintain your privacy. How do you, how do you determine ahead of time who you're going to tell and what level of information you're going to share with them? Because the last thing you want to do is confide in an office mate that, um, I, I may be in the bathroom a lot this morning because of some new medication. Can you keep an eye on the phone and know that that's going to stay between the two of you? as opposed to hearing two hours later, oh, I hear you have some more health problems from, from a stranger. So knowing, deciding ahead of time 
um, what your message is. You know, I think in the corporate world, we have PR departments and we need to be our own PR department. We have things like middle drawer statements that, you know, that we can have prepared. So what is, somebody, tell me more about that. What is the oh, middle drawer statements? Uh, maybe that's an old thing, but it was kind yeah. of like if there was something going on in the company, mm-hmm. some strange stock thing or some uh, announcement about a product and you would get asked the middle drawer statement was the pre-written message that you could share publicly so all of the messaging would be consistent so i recommend and in fact in the ebook there's a, a template to write out your own middle drawer statement so for example if I'm recently diagnosed with MS or recently diagnosed with breast cancer, there may be people who I want to tell this information to. There may be people who I want to wait until I have a treatment plan so that I can say, yes, in fact, I've been diagnosed. I have a great team of physician and support and my treatments are all set. So by sharing that, instead of just saying, you know, oh, Andrea, I, I'm diagnosed with breast cancer, I'm communicating very clearly, I've got this under control. I'm not soliciting advice. I'm not soliciting input. And that, you know, and that kind of shuts some of that down. Whereas if I just come to you with the problem, you're going to want to help me. And I may not be actually looking for help or input at that time. I may be, you know, there's so many different stages uh, when we get a diagnosis. Understanding, ready to move forward, decision-making, all of these kinds of things. And being intentional about how you share your message and your information can help better, uh, help people better understand what, if anything, you're looking for from them. That's the kind of thing I wish I had. I was diagnosed in my early 20s and I went to, at that time, I actually went to a small startup and I felt like I had to tell people. I knew technically I didn't, but I felt like I needed to because of the environment was so close. At the very, very beginning, it was just two of us and then three of us. I remember feeling like I didn't want to hold back. Like It's almost like I was lying to them because it was such mm-hmm. a huge, huge part of my life, especially when I was first diagnosed. So I wish I had had some kind of like, hey, you don't have to tell them everything. Not that I was, you know, just vomiting information, but people knew. People knew when right. I had to leave and I was like, I'm going for uh, infusion. And it's just, it's tough because sometimes you feel like you're opening up way more of your life to people who don't necessarily they haven't really earned my trust at that right. point. I just am doing it more for self-preservation because I don't want them mm-hmm. to have a reaction about what I'm doing or think I'm being lazy or think I'm cutting out on work or think when a small startup, think I'm going to be making the insurance for the entire office a mess. Unreliable. <laughs> yeah, we have yeah. all those thoughts. And that's why yeah. being very intentional and saying, you know, especially in a, in a small group, oh, you know who needs to know if you're going to be gone and those types of things. In a larger group, it's, you know, it's much easier to have one or two close confidants. And then the wider message would be, for example, you know, for the next couple of weeks on Thursday afternoons, I'm going to be out for a couple hours for a medical appointments. 
and John's agreed to cover in the meantime. So let him know if you need anything and, and he'll have access to me. And if there's any changes to the schedule, I'll let you know. I think that's fantastic because that rumor mill is real. And yes. the last thing you want to do is do anything that's going to put you in that rumor mill. And I remember thinking that that was such a tough thing to navigate because it can get really, really messy really quickly. Mm -hmm. And again, that's part of the exercise uh, that we do in the ebook is figuring out your kind of circles of, you know, similar to circles of, of influence and who needs to be right there in close with you. And this even applies to, to family and friends. You don't want to, you want to be intentional about which friends you share things with immediately, for example, because there may be people who care about you very much and, you know, and then you'll need to get the two boxes of Kleenexes and you'll both end up on the couch for a week <laughs> as opposed to the friend who will be like, you know, Andrea, that sucks. How can I help? What can we do about this? Let's get moving. And there's the friends that you you know, we also talk about who you can count on for what, who you can ask for what help and how to ask for that help in a way that makes it very comfortable for both parties. So it's, it's much easier for me to say, you know, Andrea, I'm open in the afternoons. If you need, if you need rides anywhere to treatments, I'd be happy to take you. I like that because that is a way to set clear boundaries. Yes. Which is something I think everybody with chronic illness has had some kind of practice with, <laughs> some more than others. I have found it, and a lot of people have found it, a very essential part of managing not only your illness itself, but your life with this illness. Life, yes. And I think people like to know how they can help you. Mm -hmm. And that also helps you because I feel like People want to help people, and it's from the best intentions. People love us, but there is so much information out there, and there are mm -hmm. so many, you know, cousin, best friends, nephews who did something one time that cured something that maybe you have. I mean, there is so much of that out there, right. and I feel like it's sometimes getting that clear boundary as far as what you need help with and what you don't need help with can cut down on just the barrage of random, want to be helpful information about what you should mm -hmm. or shouldn't be doing. Many people enlist until they've managed something like this are really hesitant to ask for help. And then sometimes people don't know how to offer help. And yet here we have like long-term friends that just kind of don't know what to do with each other. And then they don't have the basis for conversations going forward. So it's much easier to Say, you know, Andrea, I'm, I drive right by your house on the way to the grocery store. I'm going tonight after work. What can I bring you? You know, your job then to be a good receiver is to have that list handy that you can snap a photo of and, and text it to them. And not feel guilty about it. Right. I think a lot of times mm -hmm. also we, we go into the, no, I'm fine. Thank you. Don't right. want to don't want to be a burden because the feeling of being a burden, I think, is a very real. I'm not saying that it's true that we're a burden, but the feeling that we're a burden can be very real. And right. sometimes it's hard to accept. Like you said, do you have to receive that 
offer of help, sometimes that's really hard because you feel like, well, yeah, they keep asking, but they're just being nice. They don't really right. mean or it. Or if I ask them, maybe they can't say no. So I always recommend asking very specifically as well, saying, you know, I have an appointment on Tuesday afternoon, Andrea. It's at 11 o'clock and I think it's going to take about an hour. Would you be able to drive me? And that gives you really clear parameters so that you can say, oh my gosh, I, you know, can I catch you next time? Because I have this at, at one o'clock and it's going to conflict. As opposed to an open statement, well, do you think you could take me to the doctor on Tuesday? Then you don't know what to say, like when, and you know, I mean, it just gets ugly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does. And we're talking a lot about advocating for yourself mm-hmm. with your close friends, family, work. Talk to me about seeing it from the side of being a nurse and people advocating for themselves while they are navigating through healthcare. What are some of the most effective things that they can do that you've seen received well on the healthcare side to advocate for themselves and help get through what can be a really, really complex place? Yeah. So the the diagnosis is complex. The healthcare system is complex. Insurance systems are complex. and, And sometimes it can all seem overwhelming. And one of the ways I work with clients is actually to help them with this. So I have clients who call when they're diagnosed and they're like, okay, where do we start? And it's as often with acute diagnoses as it is with chronic. Um, you know, we talk about, are you comfortable with the group you have? Do you have a group of people assembled? So who's on your team? Do you feel comfortable with not only the diagnosis, but the proposed treatment in the follow-up? You know, so many people give the advice, oh, you better get a second opinion. Maybe you should get a second opinion. But people don't really know how to do that. And often they're afraid. They're like, well, I don't want to get my doctor upset. I don't want to have an adversarial relationship. And to be fair, I think that that can happen. Not that there's a problem asking for a second opinion. But there's a problem with maybe ego and someone saying that from the doctor's side. I think that's a very real thing. It's a very real fear. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be presented in that way. So, for example, when I work with clients, we're very specific. Are you unclear about the diagnosis? If you have something that's pretty, I'll say, routine or common, it may not be a tricky diagnosis and you may say, yeah, I believe, you know, this is what they say I have and I believe that this is what they have. They're recommending this treatment. Okay, so why would a doctor recommend a particular treatment? Well, he might think it's the best for you. It might be the only one he knows about. It might be the only treatment available in the facility that he has privileges in. Or maybe it's the only treatment available in your city. So if you, if you ask questions about other treatment options, you know, rather than just saying, I want a second opinion, say, I, I would like to know more options for treatment. What options are here? What other options do you know of that might be available at a different facility? Are there any clinical trials going on for this right now? What's available in, in 
in other cities. And you'll get a real clear picture from your doctor's response if he is knowledgeable on the subject, where he says, yes, this is available here. This is a, a clinical trial going in here, but this is really just for people who are over 65 or what. You know, so you get an idea that he knows what's going on in the field. If there is no information forthcoming about other treatment options, then you probably want to look to a specialist. Very often we see GPs attempting to manage diagnoses that are considered relatively common. And medicine is very protocol-based anyways. Medical doctors are very standard of care. That's legally what they must do, standard of care protocols. Naturopaths are more held to a quality of care standard and best practices of current times. But you need to, you want someone who knows what the options are. And then there's the potential that they can be customized for you and whether that's customized for your diagnosis or customized for your lifestyle based on your diagnosis. I am always a huge proponent of a specialist. And I know I come from the MS neurology type of a world, but that was always something when I worked with clients who were newly diagnosed and looking at their treatment plan and what their doctor was saying, I always would ask them, are you seeing a neurologist or are you seeing an MS specialist or a specialist in whatever illness they've been diagnosed with? Because something like the nervous system is such a huge just universe that mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want somebody who knows about that and these 500 other things. I want someone right. who's going to say, all right, let's not think about those 500 other things. Let's just look at what MS does, what MS effect is, and, and treat from there. And if, you know, I mean, I just think it's really important to get as specific as possible with the person who is going to help you once you have a diagnosis. Yes. I know it's different because I know not everybody gets a diagnosis, but I think that if you are sure on your diagnosis, go for a specialist, <laughs> if you can. I have found as a nurse and as a patient that specialists are more respectful and more likely to refer to other specialists. Like they are proud of the domain that they have mastered and don't need to prescribe as if they have all of the other domains mastered as well. So you have a mess that's relatively well managed and now we're going to add a pregnancy to that. Okay, who are we going to work with from that perspective? Who are we going to work with after the pregnancy you know, that we can continue to, to bring everything back kind of online into that as much homeostasis as we can? So yes, I agree with that completely when, when you can get a specialist. A specialist also offers more treatment options to adjust to your lifestyle. So for example, clients who, have, who live in very rural areas may have to time treatments differently than someone who lives in a city close to the medical center. You know, they simply may not be able to make those trips, uh, even from a health perspective, to summon the energy to do uh, a traditional 
um, course of a particular therapy, a specialist is going to have a better handle on how do we modify that. When it comes to actually being in the office with the doctor, either just getting that diagnosis, figuring out, trying to explain your symptoms, maybe you're not diagnosed yet at all. What are some quick tips for people to have just so they can feel like they are effectively communicating, effectively advocating for themselves in that moment? Mm -hmm. So I always recommend, and there's been a big wrench thrown in this recommendation over the last about two years, and you'll understand why, is that you have someone with you. And this is this is where you don't call the friend who gets the box of Kleenex and sits on the couch with you. This is where you call the friend who's like, okay, what's next? Because they will hear things you don't. And when, when we're in fear, you know, when we're in that shock, our saturation point for, for gathering information is very finite. And very often after people hear the word cancer or, or I mean, it just stops right there. And the doctor can continue talking about this and that and the other, you know, and, all, and, and he can be very informative, but you need someone else there who is listening on your behalf. Yes. I remember when I was diagnosed, looking at images of my brain and my neurologist, I remember really hearing that I was diagnosed when he said, oh no, you're on fire. There is no doubt that you have MS. But that was not the first time he had said that. He probably said it in about four different ways. And I think I was the last one in the room to be like, wait, no, hold on. What do you mean? <laughs> what are you saying? When it's happening to you, it's proven you get tunnel vision. Yes. And you can't, you can't, you physically can't hear as well. You physically can't see as well. You can't process no. things as well. And it's really, really hard for things to get through. It is. And that's, that's completely physiological. You go into a fight or flight, the blood literally leaves your brain and it's ready to go to your legs to get you the heck out of there. So having someone else there. The other thing that I can't say enough is that if you are sitting in the doctor's office getting this news, it is not an emergency. Ooh, okay, say more about that. If you're wheeled in and on your back, it's an emergency. You were already in the hospital. I'm guessing even when you heard those words, you weren't automatically wheeled off for some emergency procedure. You had treatment going on. But if you're walking into the doctor's office to get test results, chances are it's not an emergency. That's a really good thing to hear. And it's not my intent to minimize the shock of that news, but it means you can pause. You can take the breath. You can step away. You know, so in, unless they're calling the ambulance for you, you can take a day or two to formulate some questions. You can take time. And, and what we see happening now, uh, a, a client of mine, under the guise of efficiency in the medical system, a woman who went in for a routine mammogram, on her way home from work, stopped in, got her appointment. You know, you're sitting there till the uh, technician looks and makes sure the pictures are fine, that there yeah. isn't, that you didn't move around and squeal when they right. stuck you in the machine. <laughs> the technician comes out and says, the doctor looked at this and there seems to be something suspicious. 
we're going to take you down the hall and do a biopsy. And here's this woman with their slacks on, with the gown still on the top, with their shirt, with their purse, hauling down the hallway with, oh my gosh, I have breast cancer. I'm supposed to pick up the kids. I wonder if I could get a hold of my husband. Like all of this stuff happening to this woman. And then an invasive procedure. And I'm sure somewhere along the line, she's, you know, they put the paper in front of her and she signed. But she's just kind of marched through this. And she called because when this was all said and done and the biopsy sent, she went out in her car and sat and cried. And I'm like, how is that care? Anything they're going to find on a mammogram can wait a few days. So how different would that experience have been if they would have said to her, there's something suspicious. We would like to schedule a biopsy. Can you do this today? And she said, you know what? I'm going to make sure I'm going to go home. I'm going to pick the kids up. I'm going to make arrangements for them tomorrow so that somebody can get them after school. My husband's going to know what's going on. And I'll come back at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. We'll take care of this. How different of a place would her mind be for an insignificant amount of time in terms of the disease process? And that was something that was explained to her. Not right. a, there's something serious, but yeah, we can, we can see you in a week because we're busy, but have it explained to her like, Hey, here are your options. We can do it right now or right. we can wait. And by the way, it's okay to wait. Right. The hospital wants to be efficient. The hospital wants to keep you in their system because perhaps if you suspected that there was something, you may go to a different center, but right away you're plugged into the system so that you you don't ask questions. You've already had an invasive procedure. You, you kind of lose all those choices. It puts you in a very inherently vulnerable position. Yes. Especially if you're alone because you just went in for a routine mammogram. The experience for her and her whole feelings around her control over her body, her agency over her body, her decision-making process could have been so different if she didn't know, you know, she would have realized this is not an emergency. And then she wouldn't be worried. The kids would be taken care of. The household is in order. And, and you find this very often, especially in men's health, because even in households that are accustomed to incomes, socially, men are still the primary breadwinners in many homes. And to snatch them, you know, quite literally sometimes, out of the car and into a hospital bed is kind of devastating for the whole family, even if the outcome is good, because there isn't the planning there. If somebody tells you to get your affairs in order, it sounds like in the end, and really it is, you know what, get things lined up, let the people you know you need to be away from work. You know, if, if you're like me and you used to go on your lunch hour, my computer was still powered up, my lunch was still there. You know, you can't just be uh, snatched from the earth and not have implications. So even having a little bit of power in that situation sets you up for much better thinking of the ability to do like my favorite, ask better questions. Yeah. And I do think that's really important. It takes time. It takes confidence, I think. Yes. To ask better questions. This makes me think of something that um, you had said where when you were in nursing, in the cardiology unit, you would see patients who had 
kind of the exact same diagnoses or within kind of the same position, but they would have very different mentalities yes. about what was going on. Tell me, what do you think the difference was? And was part of it the fact that maybe some felt like they had more control and maybe better advocates than the other person? What, would, what was the difference, do you think? I think looking back at it after all these years, I think the patients that did the best were the ones that the doctors considered kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> Good news for me. <laughs> they, they had questions. They wanted their questions answered. They didn't just go along with everything. They wanted to know what was going to happen to them. They wanted to know why that was going to happen to them. And one step removed from that when I wasn't able to give as the nurse, when I wasn't able to provide those answers, you know, very routine things. You say, okay, this is the test. This is what it does. This is what it's going to feel like. This is about how long it takes. You'll be back in your room for lunch. If there were things going on that I couldn't get answers to, I would think, no wonder the patient's upset. You know, if I, if, if I'm not getting straight answers from the doctor, why exactly are we doing this one? This was the path we were going down. It's like, okay, are we, are you thinking of some, of some other options? Are you thinking another diagnosis? But if the patient is expected to go for a test that's invasive, they should know why. And so that's the, the, the patients that question, the patients that, that bring their list, they don't need to the office with them. The patients who want to talk, not just to the nurse, but the doctor. Um, and, and you know why? It's not that they don't believe either one, but they want to make sure they get the, both, the same story for both. And that makes sense. Because you want, you want to feel like there's coordinated care. You want to feel like, okay, there's a plan. And you want to feel like you're part of that plan. And you want to feel like people are telling you the whole story. And yes. not just the spin or the part that they feel like they should tell you, but they don't want to tell you something else because they don't want you to react or right. freak out about something. You want to make sure that you're hearing everything in a very straightforward manner. I do put myself in that pain in the ass patient category proudly, mm -hmm. but I also, I think the good healthcare teams don't care. They want to answer questions. And right. I think part of what makes it, it makes me feel like um, proudly a pain in the ass is that by asking a lot of questions, you are slowing down the process. You yes. are telling them like, whoa, 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 hold on. Don't like drop the information and run because you have another patient. Stay, explain this, tell me this mm -hmm. and let me sit with it for a second and think yes. about it because yes. a lot of times you're processing information about you mm -hmm. and in the same instance you're trying to be logical and separated enough to be able to ask good questions about right. what's next or what's going on or why do you think this and so i think part of it is we don't we feel that rush of you know they got to come in come out and you know you get your 10 minutes and you feel I know sometimes I feel like standing in front of the door. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. We're not done here. And it, that's hard to do, I think, for some people. I know when I was younger, it was hard, harder mm -hmm. for me to do. How do you or what do you tell people about developing what we talked about before, which is the confidence to be able to not just ask questions, but make sure they're answered? 
Right. So the writing the questions down and making them good questions. So rather than why do I have to take this pill? You know, is it important that it's every morning or do I just have to take it once a day? You know, ask specific questions that are relevant to your lifestyle. So you don't have to give the whole story of why you want to know, but you know, if, if you are a person who does intermittent fasting and you eat between 12 and six and there's pills that you're supposed to take at six in the morning with food. Okay. Let's talk about that. Can we take this without food? Can we shift the, the schedule differently? How, how can I make this, you know, not, I don't want to take your pills. How can I make this work in a lifestyle that's very important to me? And that's contributing to my health. Yeah, a lot of times I think that there is protocol. And so the doctor will say, this is protocol or this is how you do it. But the second you say, okay, hold on, that's not going to work for me. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, it's not. I mean, you could take it whenever you want, just every 24 hours or every 12, you know. And so it's the first, I feel like the first thing that's given to you is just going to be the rote protocol. The and then it's up to you to start asking questions or saying, speaking up for yourself and saying like, hey, that doesn't work for me. How do we make it work for you or for me? Right. And a lot of times it's a lot easier than you think it is. It is. And it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be scary. And, and in that moment of taking them pause, you're allowing them to think as well. And, you know, I don't, it's, it's not to bash on these physicians. I think part of the reason like they, they're there to provide solutions and they want to get to that, that solution that they want to provide or that is statistically the first solution to provide, you know, based on standard of care. And it's up to you to say, okay, wait a minute. Now you say that I have this, tell me a little bit more about the diagnosis. And then this is the medication you're prescribing. What does this do? You know, does this shrink a tumor? Does this, or, okay, you said I have to have radiation and chemo. Which one are we going to do first and why? Why would we do one first before the other? So we've talked a lot about navigating healthcare, being your own advocate, having other people advocate, what that looks like in the work environment. But one thing that you're very clear on, I also ascribe to this, is that your diagnosis is only part of your life. This is not yes. your entire life. Some At some point, I think it takes more center stage if you're trying to figure out something or you have a symptom that pops up or you have something else that pops up and you're, you could be really focused on it, which is fine. But it still doesn't mean that that's your life. It still right. doesn't mean that's who you are. So how do you help people who may feel like this is their entire life and affected their entire life and infecting everything from their schedule to their identity, how do you help them realize like, no, this is only part of who you are? So that's where the Heal Your Life community came in. I saw that need and I, I wanted to provide it in a very accessible way. So each month there's a different topic covered in terms of creating your new identity and your new life. And one of the things that I hear women say so often is I just want my old life back. But you know how much the experiences you've been through have transformed you and they've actually grown you as a person. And that old life doesn't fit anymore. It, it's almost impossible. You, you cannot go back. Right. You're, you're bigger than that now. And so now it's like, okay, now what? And so very often women will stay in the, 
in the comfort of familiarity of their diagnosis, even if their diagnosis is very uncomfortable. And then as things progress and you maybe stabilize and you're in a maintenance kind of phase, a remission kind of phase, it's like, okay, I was spending, you know, 16 hours a day managing this. Now what? What does that look like? What hobbies do I want now? You know, how do I get my sleep back? What about my body image? It's changed from all of this. I get to decide now how I want to dress and not just because I want to camouflage a certain feature or because I have to wear wigs for a while or, or don't have to wear wigs, but mm-hmm. it's that just like, what do I want my look to be? Right. And in the community, we get to play with that for a while. And we do it in very bite-sized pieces. It's at, at your own pace. There's resources. There's um, journaling prompts. But it's kind of a place for you to go and, and play. So we rebuild your, you know, we heal your body image. We heal your self-image. All right. Just like, you know, circling all the way back to that, who am I now that I'm not in corporate full-time? What is my self-image? Okay, I, I didn't have a choice about adjusting my self-image to a, a person with MS. What do I want it to be going forward? A person who has this, that, and the other thing, and oh, also, by the way, has MS. You know, it doesn't have to take center stage all the time, even if there's weeks that it props up pretty heavily. You, you're still building the you that you want to live in all of the time. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of what I think is kind of the myth of balance. Yes. You don't have everything perfectly evened out all the time. Sometimes yeah. things take center stage, but then I think it's a skill to let it fade into the background if it doesn't need to yes. be center stage. And I think with something as serious as a chronic illness, that can be hard to let go of because mm-hmm. it can feel like you're not doing everything or maybe you're in denial or something like that when really you're just allowing yourself yes to not focus so much on it absolutely upcoming next month in the um, heal your life community is uh exiting the sick role and it's a controversial area and, it, and it's also very challenging for people who have something like ms that you can go along perfectly fine average joe and then something comes along, pulls the rug out from underneath you, and you require a bit more management there. And it's like, well, maybe it's not safe to let people expect me to be normal. You know, maybe I'll just hang on to this identity a little bit, because then if I have a bad week, I don't have to worry about letting them down because they don't expect me to be, you know, quote, I'm making the air quotes here, normal, you know, when maybe 80% of the time you're operating like any other person. So, and, and that, you know, it's adjusted for, for work situations, for home and family. Um, but it's that, you know, what do we want our lives to look like now? And we get to decide and it's exciting. Ah, I love that. We absolutely get to decide and it can be really empowering, really exciting and really, really wonderful because it sets us on a whole new journey and we don't know where it's going to end. And it can go into some really fantastic new roles, new identities, new everything. 
Cindy Lynn, thank you so much. I oh, really you. appreciate you coming and sharing all of this knowledge. I know it's helped me a lot. I know it's helped people listening a lot. And it's been a pleasure listening to you very clearly just explain some of these things that can be quite difficult and quite uh, quite tricky to navigate. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for letting me share my excitement about this message. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis. If you like the show, don't be shy. Please give us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, or wherever you're listening right now. To see complete show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit andreahansencoaching.com. Thank you for joining me. And until next time, take care.